Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about nutrition and exercise for cancer patients with Heidi Larson and Courtney McGowan. Heidi and Courtney are both certified specialists in oncology nutrition, and here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So maybe, um, uh, Courtney, we'll start with you. Tell us a little bit more about what exactly is a certified specialist in oncology nutrition. Sure. So um, as a registered dietitian, we have our degrees in nutrition and then sit for an exam to become registered dietitians. And then in addition to that, you can seek further further specialty certifications in oncology. And you need um, extensive practice hours to do that. You sit uh, for an exam. And that allows you um, the credential to practice as a specialist in oncology nutrition. And so it really means that you have um, the knowledge and uh, the background to counsel patients specific to the things they might be experiencing as they go through treatment. So, Heidi, you know, when we think about nutrition, a lot of people think nutrition is nutrition is nutrition. Eat healthy and all will be well with the world. Are there special considerations for people who have cancer? Uh, There are several considerations uh, that we take into account, and it really depends on the cancer diagnosis uh, and what type of treatment they're going to get, whether a patient will be undergoing surgery, whether they are going to receive radiation and the location of uh, the radiation, or if they're going to be undergoing uh, chemotherapy. So we do try and uh, take all of those things into consideration when we counsel a patient. And sometimes while they're going through this acute treatment, uh, your goals might change depending on what side effects you're experiencing. So, so Courtney, maybe we'll pick up there. Talk a little bit about what are the kinds of things patients ask you about? What are the kinds of goals that people are setting? And I presumably these goals change uh, over time. They do. So um, your, your overall goal as a dietitian is to help these patients um, p- prevent malnutrition, help them eat well through their treatment. And um, as Heidi mentioned, their goals do change or, um, and what they're able to do changes as they go through treatment. So it is very dependent on the area of disease that's being treated. So patients who have disease of the head and neck may experience taste changes, may experience difficulty chewing or swallowing. And so as you're sitting down and you're talking with them, you're trying to help them navigate these side effects from treatment. And so you're taking into account not only what their food preferences are, but um, you know many of the foods that they used to enjoy, they may not 
be able to tolerate anymore. For example, a patient who was a meat and potatoes guy, you know, um, if he's a, if he's experiencing um, dry mouth or difficulty chewing and swallowing, lack of saliva, um, a big hearty steak may be a hard thing for him to sit down and eat. And so making suggestions along the lines of, you know, a, a, a chopped chicken salad where you've got the mayonnaise in there, it's nice and chopped finely, that may be something that's more appealing to the patient. Um, you know, in some cases for those head and neck cancer patients, patients, it gets to the point uh, where they're not able to eat much of anything at all, and that's where we consider need for feeding tubes um, and, and nutrition in that through that vehicle. So, and I guess the other question, uh, Heidi, that people ask is, you know, did I eat something that caused my cancer? Um, it, are there are there things that people should be avoiding that that are carcinogenic or or foods that you kind of say you know steer clear of that or is it really you know eat there really is less of a tie between what you eat and getting cancer because presumably that's a question that many people might ask. I agree. I think a lot of people look to their history um, and behaviors they might have had that could have influenced their cancer diagnosis. But I think um, anybody who works in an oncology field never wants to place blame and shame on a person. Um, And, you know, when it comes down to it, when it comes to nutrition, you can never say definitively 100% that something you ate caused your cancer or didn't eat caused your cancer. But uh, looking at all of the literature that's available out there, we do know that certain uh, lifestyle behaviors can reduce your risk. Of course, it's never a guarantee, but um, you know, we do know that some healthy uh, behaviors can make a difference. And what we know now, um, some of the most important th- uh, things you can do is, number one, exercise, and two, uh, maintain a healthy weight. Uh, and that there's more and more evidence emerging that uh, o- obesity can um, play a huge role. So, Uh, You know, if anybody can do anything to reduce their risk, I would recommend uh, going out there, um, you know, trying to uh, get some exercise and trying to come up with a plan for weight loss. Yeah. And I'll tell you, you know, now that we've started a a brand new year, a lot of people um, are thinking about making resolutions. I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to eat right. Uh, that's a little bit easier said than done. So, Courtney, what suggestions do you have as a nutritionist from a practical standpoint? People have made all of these resolutions with the best of intentions. What steps do you recommend to help them lose weight, maintain an ideal body weight, eat healthy, get exercise? Sure. So I think um, one of the most important things to do is to set realistic goals. You know, um, as much as it might be desired to lose 15 pounds in a week, (laughs) what's recommended as healthy, safe weight loss is a pound or two a week. And so setting a realistic goal like that, you don't want to set yourself up for failure. You know, so you do incremental weight loss is is helpful. Um, 
Also, you know, keeping food records is a great way to track what you're eating, to hold yourself more accountable. Nobody needs to look at them. They can just between, be between you and the piece of paper, or there's a lot of apps now for phones that will automatically log calories. You can log your weight in there as well. And so, you know, to set a calorie limit and have your calories accumulate over the course of the day, and it just gives you a very real sense of how much you're actually consuming. And that can be a real eye-opener for people who, um, yeah, I think it's common to, to underestimate how much you're actually consuming in a day. And along those same lines, um, a pedometer is a great way to actually track steps and to have a true, um, you know, estimate, assuming it's a, it's a, um, a reliable pedometer. <laughs> um, but it'll give you a good, a good sense of exactly how active you are. A lot of people, um, you know, also overestimate how much they're exercising. And so to have their eyes open to that is can be helpful. Yeah, I, I tend to overestimate my exercise and underestimate my food intake. Uh, I think that has something to do with why I am the size that I am. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> You're not alone. Um, so so uh, Heidi, maybe tell us a little mm-hmm. bit, if we set this realistic, okay, let's say we're going to be realistic, uh, goal for weight loss. A lot of people wonder, you know, how do we actually achieve that? Is it calorie restrictions? Is it fat restriction? Is it, should we be eating high protein? Should we do like a grapefruit diet or an Atkins diet? What about cleansing uh, uh, things? Uh, what, what works? Give us a tip on how we can actually lose weight and do it in a healthy way. Well, this is uh, the never-ending debate among uh, nutritionists is what is the best way to uh, lose weight. And uh, not only dietitians have opinions about this, but anybody you would meet on the street has an opinion about this. But, uh, you know, we really try and focus on the long term and try and get people to avoid a fad diet that will only bring a temporary change. And research really shows that um, the best um, changes happen in small increments. So, um, and also the goal should be measurable. So instead of saying, you know, I would like to lose weight or I want to exercise more, you should quantify that. So uh, you should maybe instead of saying, I would like to exercise more, I'm going to the gym, you say, I'm going to walk up 20 uh, flights of stairs a day. Or, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, evidence that people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. A measurable goal would be, I'm going to eat seven fruits and vegetables a day. And then you can come up with a specific plan if you know your goal, and you can hold yourself accountable when you get to the end of the day and see what you've done right and pat yourself on the back or readjust based on what you've done wrong. And we have found that those small incremental goals uh, produce more long-lasting weight maintenance. So, Courtney, what about, um, so you set yourself some small incremental goals and you, you kind of know what you, you want to achieve. I still think people might be stuck where it comes to, well, what really should they be doing? So recently, um, you know, the, the guidelines have changed. Um, so can you kind of give us a sense of, like, is it that we're only supposed to eat so much sugar or is it the carbs or is it 
protein or is it fat? I mean, people keep telling us to read the labels, and I I read the labels, and I don't know what to make of them. Yeah, so um, it can be confusing. Those labels can be overwhelming to look at. Uh, but in general, you know, what's recommended and as, as is, is to follow a diet that's wholesome. Follow a diet that is, you know, rich in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, as opposed to refined white grains. Um, you know, choosing primarily a plant-based diet um, has been found to reduce cancer risk. And so, you know, getting your protein from your nuts and your beans, and it certainly can include um, animal sources of meat, um, but to primarily focus on the plant-based food sources. And of course, portion control is always important too. And so, you know, we set a goal of, say, those seven, those seven servings of fruits and vegetables like Heidi mentioned. And if you think about That sounds like a lot, but if you incorporate those over the course of the day in the form of not just with meals, but make your snacks those fruit and vegetable bases as well, you're not only helping to get those nutrients from your fruits and vegetables, but you're you're cutting down on calories when you end up replacing, you know, whatever you got out of the the office vending machine (laughs) with the carrots and celery that you you brought from home. And so when we talk, Heidi, about these goals, you know, can you tell us a little bit more about what is a reasonable goal in terms of steps? So, Courtney, you mentioned having a pedometer, and a lot of people say 10,000 steps a day. I always wondered, where did that number 10,000 steps a day come from? Like, was it pulled out of the air? Because truthfully, when some of us not not pointing any fingers or anything, but some of us get home at the end of what we consider to be a busy day and we look at the pedometer and we're nowhere even remotely close to 10,000 steps a day. And so I start thinking, what's up with 10,000 steps a day? Could we make it like 2,000 steps? Well, uh, the t- 10,000 steps a day equates to 30 minutes of exercise every single day which is the amount of exercise that they found produces uh, some type of benefit for people. So, uh, you know, it is a challenge to get the 10,000 steps in a day because I've I've done it myself. (laughs) And, uh, you know, some of the ways that, uh, you know, I've been able to um, incorporate more uh, steps into a day is, you know, I'll – walk through the hospital while I'm working or take the stairs or if it's nice weather take a step outside so if you start early before you get to your uh end of your day you can get closer to your goal all right well we're gonna take a short break for a medical minute and then we'll catch up about more about food and nutrition and exercise uh with my guests Heidi Larson and Courtney McGowan The American Cancer Society estimates that there will be 75,000 new cases of melanoma in the U.S. this year, with over 1,000 of these patients living in Connecticut. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. Early detection is the key, and when detected early, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. 
The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence, SPORE, in Skin Cancer Grant is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anish Chagpar. I am joined tonight by my guests who are registered dietitians. In fact, they're oncology specialist dietitians, uh, Heidi and Courtney. And we're talking about nutrition and exercise for cancer patients and for people who never want to become cancer patients. So, Courtney, before the break, we were talking a little bit about getting 10,000 steps getting 30 minutes of exercise a day because that reduces risk. And we've talked a little bit about, you know, how we can try to lose weight and eat healthy as we start the new year. For cancer patients, I would anticipate that some of those recommendations may be more difficult. I mean, let's suppose you're going through chemotherapy or radiation and you're getting a bit tired. Um how do you still get that exercise in and and how do you still remember to he- eat healthfully yeah so so the goals um the goals that you have for cancer prevention are very different than what your goals are as you're actively getting treated um, for many of our cancer patient populations. Uh, once you have a cancer diagnosis, you're undergoing treatment, there are so many side effects that can make it very difficult for you to follow those previous guidelines of you know, a, a diet rich in fruits and vegetable and whole grains, which tends to be very high in fiber. Um, as you go through treatment, some of the common side effects, you know, may, diarrhea is very common. And with that, for many patients, they better tolerate diets that are low in fiber. And so you actually encourage them to avoid your raw fruits and vegetables if they do cause worsening of the diarrhea. You encourage more refined white flours instead of the whole grain fibers, uh, whole grain whole grains. And so it's a shift in the conversation um, more toward foods that they can tolerate to help maintain their nutrition status as they're dealing with the side effects from treatment. And so you kind of put that... Um, how do I keep from getting cancer on hold? And you shift more toward a what can I tolerate to prevent malnutrition? Um, in terms of fatigue, one of the things that they found t- can help combat fatigue is exercise. And so if you can really motivate those patients to believe that and, and get off the couch and just go for a small walk, assuming, of course, that the physician says that it's safe for them to do that, um, that can actually help fatigue. And so once they near the end of their treatment is when you would readdress, you know, as they start to feeling better, how can they then start to reincorporate those healthy uh, food patterns that we had encouraged prior to them getting um, the disease or treatment and side effects? So Heidi, I think this whole concept of, you know, fatigue and exercise is really quite interesting. I I find that even for non-cancer patients, one of the difficulties is the fatigue and the lack of motivation to get to the gym. Once you're at the gym, you have a blast, you're going hard, you're pumped, life is grand, but it is that... And, and we've all had a million excuses, me including, uh, you know, I'm too tired, I've had a busy day, it's too cold, you name it. 
How do you get over that? Because I think that when patients and people have fatigue, one of the hard parts is that first push to get out there. And once you once you exercise, you feel great. But how do you get over that first hurdle? I think that's a big issue for a lot of patients. I agree. Um, you know, there is um, a lot of evidence out there that people who exercise and are active are less pr- uh, prone to chemotherapy-related fatigue. So, you know, it's really working individually uh, with a patient to help them identify w- how what motivates them. So a person who has never been to the gym before isn't going to, you know, go sign up at the local gym. But perhaps you can help them, you know, recall a time in their life and an activity in their life that they enjoyed. So, or even if you can get them, um, you know, to think about walking about around uh, the neighborhood, because getting um, outside, getting fresh air, not only are you getting exercise, but it can also affect uh, your attitude and your feeling of well-being. In addition, uh, you know, I think there is a, a one or two day period uh, where people do feel very fatigued after treatment. And I think it's also okay to let people know during that one to two day period, it is okay, you know, to skip the workout, but still try and maintain your day to day activities and to especially, you know, take care of yourself and maintain um, good hydration during that time so that when you are feeling better, you can get back out there and uh, get your exercise in. So, Courtney, Heidi mentioned hydration, so which brings up a whole other mm-hmm. issue. Um, people say that we should be drinking eight glasses of water a day. Why is that? And is that really true? Do we really need eight glasses of water a day? And... As the corollary to that, is it any fluid? Like, can we have eight glasses of Diet Coke instead? You want to maintain proper hydration, of course, and the eight glasses of water a day are recommended. Um, It depends on your patient population. If you're talking about the healthy, well individual, then water is going to be a great choice because it doesn't have calories. So if you're talking about trying to, you know, manage weight, it's good for that. Um, when you get into your diet beverages, um, many of them have caffeine, you know. And so, so for the healthy population, it is best to do water. I know sometimes that's hard for people to to tolerate, and they do make these great water bottles now where you can put your fruit in the middle so that it infuses the flavor of the fruit into the water, which is a great way to get some added vitamins as well. Um, so, so that's a clever way to help you reach that goal. Um, and when you're talking about the, the cancer patient, it changes a little bit where you're, you're having them get full quickly and, and having all these other side effects that are making adequate intake difficult. And so for that population, encouraging things that do have calories are, is preferred, um, Water is, is always good, um, but, you know, sometimes they find it more manageable to do popsicles, and sometimes, um, you know, your nutrition supplements can also be of benefit, your liquid shakes and things like that, where you're getting some calories and protein along with your hydration. And so, again, that conversation shifts depending on the type of person you're 
talking about. So, Heidi, let's talk a little bit about supplements and and so on. You know, many of us uh, are, are now getting ready to start the new year. We want to be healthy. Should we be taking supplements? Should we be taking a vitamin? What about protein supplements and things that you can find at health food stores and at the gym? Are those good for you, not good for you? There's so much varying information out there. Give us the straight goods on what we should be doing or not doing. Yes, it's uh, all very confusing, and I think I wouldn't necessarily call it information more marketing than anything. (laughs) Um, But, you know, statistically, I think 70% or more of cancer patients use some type of supplement. And the type of supplements that they use can vary from just a whey protein to, you know, a highly complicated herbal mix, uh, to, you know, your day-to-day grocery store items that just have our supplemented, uh, you know, waters. So it can vary greatly. You know, our philosophy as dietitians is whole foods first. And when you look at the evidence, it does point in the direction that you get the greatest benefit of of nutrients from foods. And, uh, you know, every time they've tried to extract a specific uh, supplement out of a food, for example, selenium and prostate cancer, um, the potential benefits they've seen have been negated when they take the supplement only. Hmm. But I think people really do, um, you know, perhaps uh, use supplements uh, when they might not necessarily be safe. So uh, we do ask people to let us know whenever they're using uh, any type of herbal mixture or vitamin supplement, because our biggest concern is that it could have uh, some type of interaction with the chemotherapy and uh, lessen or negate its uh, effect. Uh, as far as uh, like whey protein supplements, uh, again, if somebody's eating well, uh, that's maybe something that's not necessary. Uh, but for a good amount of our population, say for somebody who isn't swallowing well, or for somebody who has taste changes, you know, that might be a good option for them until they're feeling better. Are, are there certain supplements and vitamins that could actually promote cancer um, that, uh, that people should really be wary of? Or is this just, you really don't need it, you can take it if you'd like, but talk to your doctor about whatever you're taking? Um, based um, on the literature I've seen, I know that, uh, you know, there have been some cases where uh, bodybuilding supplements have been pulled off the shelves mm-hmm. because they've been shown um, to cause uh, prostate cancer mm-hmm. in certain populations. Um, and as well, I know that, you know, uh you know, folic acid, if you're already diagnosed with cancer in excessive amounts, 
could potentially be harmful. So I think it's just uh, people need to be a little bit cautious about what they're taking and where they're getting their information from. And part of the concern with supplements, too, is that they're not a regulated product. And so, you know, the FDA doesn't oversee what's in them. And so what's on their label is not necessarily what's actually in the product that you're consuming. And so that's warrant for concern. And especially in the cancer population, when you're talking about someone who might be neutropenic, um, if these products aren't regulated, if they're cancer low and they could be at increased risk for infection, um, the products aren't regulated, they may contain mold. They may contain something that could cause an infection or cause harm to them. And so that's the concern with with supplements and, you know, with the guidelines of various colors of fruits and vegetables and whole grains, as Heidi said before, as dietitians, we advocate food first. Yeah. So what what people advertise as natural, uh, probably the most natural thing to do is shop in the produce aisle and, and get something that came from a tree or a plant or a, a bush or something. Right. Yes. And that's not to say that, you know, in our patients, when we talk about how they're eating poorly. You know, a, a lot of them, when they are restricted in the amount of fruits and vegetables they're able to tolerate, um, a multivitamin could be appropriate for patients like that. Um, but that's just your standard run-of-the-mill multivitamin without the bells and whistles. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you're not the first nutritionist who have said, eat the rainbow, right? Eat all of the different colors. So why is that? What's up with the colors? Like, What about just eating, I mean, because on the other hand, you also all say, eat a plant-based diet. Well, most plants are green. What if you just ate green? Is green good enough or do you really need the rainbow? The rainbow is beneficial. So every color... you know, takes its its nutrients from Mother Nature. And so within each color, you have different phytonutrients, um, which have been found to, you know, provide different benefit. And so the more colors you can eat, the more diverse of your phytonutrients and vitamins and minerals and, you know, a food that might be rich in vitamin C may be lacking in other nutrients. And so by getting the colors, you get a more wider variety. Heidi Larson and Courtney McGowan are certified specialists in oncology nutrition. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at YaleCancerCenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program. And we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.